0: nerd wallet finance smarter
1: xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month no matter what kind of entertainment you love addicted to true crime catch killer cases and more spine tingling shows on a and e crime central crave adventure explore asian action movies on Hayya.
3: by visiting musicgives.org.
1: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
3: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
2: And I'm Joe McCormick. And we're back with our second part in the series we've been doing about the Black Death, which is uh, another name for the, the big outbreak at the beginning of the second plague pandemic. There have been three... Major pandemics in world history of of plague caused by the bacterium Yersinia pestis. Uh, the second one of them is this big one at the in the late Middle Ages that began in the middle of the 14th century and then had these recurrent waves uh, that went on for hundreds of years after that. And so, in the last episode, we we talked about uh, I guess mostly there we talked about scientific questions about what the causative agent of the plague was, how it spread, and some of the outstanding questions about that. There's still a lot, actually, that uh, is surprisingly unknown about how exactly these plague pandemics worked, or uh, certainly the older ones before the uh, the one in the 19th and 20th century. Yeah, so in this episode, we're going to look more
3: at the the contemporary response to the Black Death, the 14th century response to the Black Death. Well, what we know about uh, the views on on disease and illness at the time, and to what extent those were useful or useless against this this onslaught of
2: plague. Now, Rob, I know one of the main reasons that uh, you got interested in doing a series of episodes on the plague was that you were interested in religious responses to the plague. Mm-hmm. Like, what were the religions in the the affected communities saying about the plague? And so that's what we've been looking into for uh, this episode, and we'll probably end up doing another one after this. Uh, and th- this has been a really interesting subject, not only because it is inherently interesting, but actually – the uh the historiography of the subject is interesting like there's been interesting recent scholarship on the historical analysis of the different religious responses to the black plague and and uh how those analyses have worked and to what extent they're accurate so uh so the uh, full disclosure i think when we do start talking about comparative religious responses to the black plague this is something that I think is probably still a, a matter of debate. This is also like we were talking about in the last episode, not something that's just a settled set of facts that are a matter of the history books.
3: right? And then also when we get into stuff like this, a, a lot of times there are some uh, broad theories uh, about how, okay, if, if you didn't have the Black Death, you wouldn't have had this or because of the Black Death, this and this occurred. And some of these are very compelling uh, cases, but we also have to remind ourselves that like, you know, this is a a complex game of trying to figure out how history comes together and, you know, what causes what. So, you know, butterfly wings uh, are flapping all over the place. Uh, So, you know, we have to have to remind ourselves that that nothing is 100% certain, but some of these arguments are rather interesting. Well, let's go ahead and start here in, uh, in, in the world of Christian Europe at the time, and uh, I thought we might begin by just looking at the broader view of illness and also ultimately the divine. Um, basically, how did people at this time in this region view the cause of disease? Uh, what did they think about disease? Where did they think it came from, and how did they think you should uh, attempt to treat it? And so I thought we might run through some of the, the key ideas here. And some of these we've discussed on the show before, sometimes at length. So for starters, there was the idea of the four humors, and this was rooted in the work of Hippocrates that an imbalance of the four humors of blood, phlegm, black bile, and yellow bile could result in disease. And this idea had been built on by Galen and others. So it basically said, you know, to treat illness, one would need to rebalance the humors, and there were various ways of doing this, but we know now that this was not correct.
2: And this is, in fact, one of the, um, the the main lines of thinking leading to a major treatment of the Middle Ages and and beyond, which is the treatment of bloodletting, or actually yeah. not just bloodlet bloodletting, various uh, purging procedures that would try to purge people of excess fluids within the body when some when it was thought that their humors were out of balance. So if you you know you had too much blood in the body, and maybe that's leading to. Uh, I don't recall exactly, maybe a fever or something like that. I could have that wrong, what they thought led to what. But you could, you could alleviate that by putting, you know, punching a hole in the body and allowing excess blood to run out. Right.
3: Now, next there was the there was the idea that illness spread via bad air, and this was miasma theory, which we've definitely discussed on the show before. Uh, this uh, also had been advanced by Hippocrates. So again, an idea rooted in uh, in in classical thought and some of the you know uh, what were considered the best ideas concerning the natural world of the time. Um, so as we've discussed on the show before, the notion of bad and foul air being the thing that allows disease to travel and infect. Uh, That would mean, therefore, the removal of bad air or the positioning of yourself further from bad air would be a way to prevent or combat illness. Now, interestingly enough, this approach can work accidentally in some cases, but again, this one too is not correct.
2: Yeah, so uh, we've actually done uh, at least one whole episode on miasma theory before, um, maybe multiple episodes. So if you go into the back catalog, you can probably find that somewhere. Um, but uh, but yeah, miasma theory is very interesting, especially because its its mechanisms are not always easy to nail down. But yeah, it's generally the idea that there's something in the air, often a foul smelling air or some kind of Bad air or bad vapor that uh, that could have a number of proximate causes of its own. It may be air that is caused by a conjunction of the planets or something, or it might be mm-hmm. released from deep in the earth during an earthquake. And all of these things might ultimately be something you could trace back to a supernatural cause, as many people in Christian Europe would. They would say, you know, well, here are the proximate causes. It's bad air that was say released by the planets or released by an earthquake, but ultimately it's God. It's God is punishing us, and and we'll come back to the theological interpretations in a moment. I was reading a work by a historian named Michael W. Doles, who lived uh, 1942 to 1989, who was a a historian of uh, medicine and a historian of the Middle East. He, He published a book called The Black Death in the Middle East in 1977. I think it was actually his doctoral dissertation. But he's a, a widely cited scholar on this subject uh, who uh, – and also I want to come back either in this episode or in the next episode with more recent scholarship that has offered some some critiques of, of Doles' generalizations about, uh, about religious responses to the plague. So this, it's not just like what he says goes for all time. But in an essay I was reading called uh, The Comparative Communal Responses to the Black Death in Muslim and Christian Societies published in the 70s. Uh, He's writing, before he gets into the religious responses, he's writing about the dominant mechanistic theories of plague transmission within both Christian and Muslim societies, and he writes that both of these societies tended to have this same dominant mechanical theory of the spread of plague, so both of them were largely working from Miasma theory like you're talking about the idea that plague is caused by bad air and this is because uh, communities of, of both religions were largely drawing on the same medical traditions like you mentioned Hippocrates the elaboration on Hippocrates by Galen but then also even Sina or uh, also known as Avicenna and as a result of the belief in miasma theory. A common preventative to infection under this theory is what might be called changing the air. And so this could, have, this could have interpretations that would actually be useful, even though the theory is wrong, and could have interpretations that would be completely useless. So it might mean, say, uh, getting out of the area where the bad air is. You know, you're changing the air by changing your location. So if everybody around you is getting infected, that probably means there's some bad air around and you need to get away from it so you could flee uh, but then also it could mean something like sweetening the air this was a common practice of infusing the air you breathe with pleasant scents like herbs or flowers or fresh fruits and so when you see those plague doctor masks like we talked about in the uh, in the previous episode that, that might have a beak or some kind of uh, pr- protuberance coming from where the the mouth and the nose would be that presumably the person wearing the mask is breathing through, not having a germ theory of disease, they were not thinking about trying to filter out droplets bearing viral particles. Instead, they were thinking about filtering the air coming into your mouth and nose with sweet smells. So those uh, protuberances in the mask would often be stuffed with herbs or, or something like that.
3: Right. And then, and then I, I think in, at least in some cases, the idea too, was that there was still a, an opening right next to either nostril. So, yeah, <laughs> um, so there, there were a number of, of, problems with that design, which, again, to be clear, was not uh, would not have been in, in, in use uh, during this time period. It would have come centuries later, and there's still some dispute as to how widespread they actually
2: were. But despite the fact that they come later and they, uh, they, they might not have been as widespread as you might get an impression, uh, they still do reflect the dominant thinking about the mechanistic causes of disease transmission at the time. Uh, and, and it's understandable, because Uh, you basically have a a learned system here
3: that matches up closely with some of our natural responses to, say, revolting or alarming smells, Mm -hmm. you know, like basically it lines up with some of our body's natural defenses against potentially uh, poisonous
2: or infectious agents. Right. I mean, so we have natural disgust reactions that are uh, almost certainly evolved to protect us from infectious disease. Like, why is it that we tend to find the body fluids of, of other people and animals revolting and like we want to get away from them? It's probably because that is an evolved response. An animal that happens to be disgusted by body fluids and, and stays away from them is less likely to contract an infectious disease. Mm-hmm. So that's also an area in which even though the person who has this disgust reaction might not understand the mechanism, it's that oh, tiny organisms might get into my body and then start colonizing and infecting me. Uh, the the intuition provided by the disgust reaction is itself protective, even though you you might you wouldn't understand the reason why. But anyway, coming back to the other half of it, so another way of changing the air is to change your location, right? So if you get away from where you perceive there to be a cloud of miasma, you might also be getting yourself away from real vectors of disease, which uh, could be a number of things. I mean, we talked about different theories of this in the last episode, but you could be getting yourself away from host populations of infected animals like commensal rodents, which are carrying fleas, which would deliver the infectious bite or away from infected people who could possibly be spreading the disease directly, either through droplets that they're coughing out, uh, leaving the nose and mouth if they have pneumonic plague, an infection of the lungs, or getting away from infected people who are transmitting plague to other people through their human ectoparasites, which is a a finding of a recent study we, we talked about. I think it was from 2018 or so. Uh, that, that said the, the uh, for a number of plague outbreaks, it looks like the best explanatory model for how the plague spreads is if it's being spread person to person through things like human lice and human fleas. Mm-hmm. But in any case, getting away from where plague is, is an effective method of protecting yourself, no matter which of these vectors is, is the dominant one.
3: Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
1: This has been brought to you by the fully electric Hyundai Ioniq 5. New episode out now. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Now, from this point, we get into some of the more supernatural causes, and and we can certainly lump these. All together and just say, all right, supernatural causes of, of the of the disease, of the plague, or we can divide them up into a few different categories. Uh, on one hand, I think we, we can easily state that the supernatural is never the cause of an illness and therefore, by and large, supernatural solutions are not going to work. Um, but uh, roughly speaking, I think we can look at three different categories and we can discuss them from there. So first of all, there's the supernatural individual level. So disease is a result of sin, like individual sin, a punishment for sin, or a test administrated by supernatural forces. Uh, Generally, we're talking about God or an agent of God. Medieval thinking tended to limit the extent to which demons could actually mess with flesh. Uh, this is something that was discussed in the – had been discussed in the works of Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas had laid in on this. So uh, there, there were certain limits, like the idea that that uh, the devil could not turn you into an animal uh, because mm. that, would, that would be in defiance of natural law. But other things were permitted, so you, you can kind of – it gets into kind of a, a messy um, – theological area um, but so, so for the most part when people were looking for a cause of the plague, they were not looking to hell, they were looking to heaven
2: yeah, from everything i've been reading, this was especially the the overwhelming uh, supernatural explanation used throughout Christian Europe at the time was that uh, that disease, especially plague is in some way a punishment for sin, and it, often an individual punishment for sin. Uh, and of course, this could give rise to all kinds of theodicy type questions, right? Mm-hmm. Where theodicy, of course, being the the subject of uh, believers trying to justify the ways of God to man, uh, uh, this could give rise to questions like, well, why would innocent children uh, be, catch this disease? You know, they're, they're too young. Um, to to be culpable for sin in the same way adults are. And, and this was addressed in numerous ways. Some people might say, well, it's actually their parents are being punished for their sin or, uh, you know, in the saying that the children will get to go to heaven, their parents are being punished. Or it might be said that the children uh, uh, have disobeyed the commandments to honor their father and mother. So they're you know, by being disobedient to their parents, they are actually being punished. Uh, but yeah, supernatural punishment seems to have been an overwhelmingly common interpretation, especially within Christian Europe. Up.
3: Uh, I do want to add a caveat, though, about like the limited powers of, of demonic forces is that you're going to also encounter exceptions to that rule, certainly when you're dealing with individual surviving folkloric and mythological ideas. Um, uh, but, but this is just sort of by and large, like what the what the how the learned uh, members of society would have interpreted the problem. Now, uh, an extension of the supernatural individual category is the supernatural group category, which we're already discussing a little bit here. This is the same as previously uh, explained, uh, but roughly applied to an entire city, an entire people or culture, and generally limited uh, to you know the judgment of divine forces again. So there's something, something is wrong in our culture or in our church or in our kingdom or in our world entirely. We've fallen astray and therefore the Almighty is punishing us. And then another category, and this kind of gets down to a lot of the, like I say, the sort of ground-level folkloric um, ideas, the idea that witchcraft and magic were involved. This is something encountered in, in cultures around the world generally, the idea that disease may be caused by others practicing magic against you. Mm-hmm. Um, this generates ideas concerning witches and sorcerers uh, but also leads to all manner of othering and uh, the the and persecution in response to illness something bad is happening to us illness is here someone is responsible and we have to do something about it
2: yeah and as as you allude to uh, and as anyone might guess the, this particular interpretation can have really disastrous consequences
3: yeah So again, none of these understandings of disease are are actually valid, and none of them are really going to work. Certainly, some of them may seem to work, and they may seem to work in certain cases with other illnesses, but then here comes the black death with just staggering mortality rates. Uh, we got into this a bit in the last episode, but uh, I mean, I, it, it, the numbers are going to vary, but I've seen like a rough 30 to 75 percent mortality rate for plague. I, I've seen uh, bubonic with a, an 80 percent mortality rate during this time, and I've seen uh, uh, the other varieties of plague, with you know upwards of ninety to a hundred percent of mortality, so it's uh, you know s- staggering numbers to consider.
2: Yeah, uh, with pneumonic or septicemic plagues, the other two versions, and again they're they're all caused by the same bacterium. It's all mm-hmm. Yersinia pestis. It's just about how the body gets infected. So pneumonic is infection of the lung tissue, like if either. Bubonic plague progresses to uh, a lung infection, or if you inhale the bacterium directly, and it uh, gives you a primary lung infection. That's pneumonic plague. Septicemic plague is infection of the bloodstream with the Yersinia pestis. And either way, uh, yeah, these are just absolutely devastating. Like without uh, without very quick antibiotic treatments, and uh, and I do think it's important to stress that in even in the modern world. With these versions of plague, you've got to catch it early with the antibiotics to be effective because these, uh, these forms of the disease can progress shockingly rapidly. There, there are stories from the Middle Ages of uh, you know uh, people people going to bed seemingly okay and then just being dead by the next morning. It's a, a, a shockingly rapid progression. And, uh, and yeah, the, the, the mortality rates without early antibiotic intervention are somewhere near 100%.
3: Now, uh, some of the prevention and treatment practices of the day were certainly in line with the four humors and the miasma theory. Um, On the later front, one of the most consequential views was that, again, one could just simply move from an area with bad air to one with better air. But all of this was more prevalent in the early days of the Black Death. Um, As it progressed, you saw more of a turning to potential religious cures and religious treatments, religious responses to the plague.
2: Yeah, because if you are following this view in, in Christian, that's very common in Christian Europe that the plague is being caused by sin and it is a punishment for sin, then you would think that the primary way of alleviating it would be doing something about the underlying cause, doing something about the, the, the state of sin that you're in and trying to fix that in order to get God to relent with the disaster
3: yeah and so like the most obvious treatment here is okay if this if god has allowed this to happen or caused this to happen I need to get on the phone with God, and I do have a way, I have a direct line, I can pray, we can all pray. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, that was one method, turn to prayer, prayer to God. And various other uh, other uh, religious approaches come into play, too. here, the use of amulets and charms as a means of uh, of aiding prayer, or as a, as a means of protecting against plague, uh, even as the, the idea that some form of contagion was taking place, like the idea that it was, uh, that, that that it became apparent that something was happening. It was somehow spreading from person to person. Even if you got into this view, there was still the idea, well, an amulet can stand between me and that. It can be the thing that protects me. Um, and when this didn't appear to work, we can certainly understand why more extreme methods were then explored. Like, if prayer doesn't work and, and amulets are not working, then maybe I'm not trying hard enough and therefore, God is still not removing this plague from my shoulders.
2: And here you get into some of the most interesting theological reasoning that uh, that appeared in Christian Europe in response to the plague, which is picking up on, on pre-existing ideas about the powers of the mortification of the flesh.
3: Yes, uh, the, the various flagellant groups, for example, um, you've probably seen Um, Art uh, and, uh, you know, you've seen paintings depicting these individuals before often people in white clothing um, going uh, making like minor parades through the streets, uh, whipping or flailing oneself, uh, drawing blood from one's back, thus staining the white garments that you're wearing um, as an act of penance. And the the interesting thing about these is that these groups practicing the mortification of the flesh in public rituals as a means of of seeking penance during times of great suffering and fear, uh, these existed prior to the Black Death. Um, You you find these during the 13th century. And during the 13th century, they had already reached the point of heresy or the charge of heresy by the church uh, as it became a sort of grassroots means of removing one's sin, effectively or or at least uh, to the powers that be, seeming to come dangerously close to cutting the power of the church out of the equation. Because what do you need church for when the power to remove sins resides in your own hands, and your own flails? Um, Even more so when this idea generates that merely witnessing a progression of flagellants through the streets
2: can remove your sins. If you're trying to picture uh, a procession, a flagellant procession, people moving in formation through the streets, punishing their own bodies in order to enact the mortification of the flesh. And and by the way, the mortification of the flesh, I mean, these people did point to sort of uh, passages in the Bible that could be interpreted as giving them license to, to enact this kind of spiritual dealing where they, mm-hmm. you know, punishing the body or denying the body. Uh, pleasure and inflicting pain on the body could in some way uh, purify you in the eyes of God, like there uh, you know there's uh, there are passages in like the book of Romans where where the apostle Paul writes that for if you live after the flesh, you shall die, but if uh, you live through the spirit and through the spirit, do mortify the deeds of your body, you will live
3: yeah and and ultimately the the mortification of the flesh. Um, you know, flagellant rites and so forth. It gets kind of it gets really complicated. I think we've looked into this on past episodes of the show because you know you're dealing with 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 the pain and pleasure uh, network of the brain. Um, You're dealing with with complex, you know, mythic histories of suffering and the meaning of suffering. And so we see rites of this nature in religions around the world. It's 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 nothing that's you know, completely isolated to these movements we're discussing here.
2: Yeah, that's right. Oh, but I, sorry, I I forgot to complete the thought I started a moment ago. (laughs) I was going to mention, I was going to mention that flagellant groups and flagellant Processions of the Middle Ages are parodied uh, uh, to to great effect in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Do you remember yes, the part where yes. the the monks, the Brotherhood, they're walking through the streets and beating their own faces with the wooden boards?
3: Yep, yep. <laughs> that's, that's there's a lot of. I mean, the, the, those guys, especially uh, with Terry Jones, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they were very well read on uh, on, on medieval thought. So, uh, yeah, it, it it makes sense that we would find some, such great parody there. Uh, but certainly, yeah. To, to get back to the, the point here, like these groups were around. This line of thinking already existed, and during the 14th century, the Black Death stirred this reaction again for for obvious recent reasons. And so the practice surged, and the practice even peaked during this time. Um, uh, you know, people were realizing these other forms of prayer and religious right were not working. What is the next level we should take things to? Uh, well, maybe we should take to the streets like this.
2: Yeah, I do think it's interesting that uh, the the mortification of the flesh idea took on this public display, uh, Mm -hmm. and I'm sure it wasn't always a public display, but like, why why in the cases of the people who led these processions in the streets, was it not enough just to mortify your flesh or punish your body in private? Why did you need to do it as a group in public? What was that accomplishing specifically? And I don't know the answer to that question. You
3: know, it probably gets into some of what we discussed in our Tears episodes, you know, that it's, it's one thing to have a, an emotional outpouring that is individual or in, or in a case of a, you know, sort of religious uh, situation, a one-on-one communication with God. But if it is public and communal, then it takes on a different power.
2: Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride.
0: Hey, it's Danielle, Will, and Ryder from Pod Meets World. Thanks to our friends at Hyundai, we were able to record a very special episode for you guys at the one and only, wait for it, Boy Meets World House. Take a listen. We are lucky to be sitting with Alan and Amy Matthews in the flesh, William, Rusty Russ, and Betsy Randall. Yay! How lucky we were yeah. to
1: have you guys. This has been brought to you by the fully electric Hyundai Ionic 5. New episode out now. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.
3: Now, uh, there's a, an important distinction to be made here uh, between just the practice and the movement of um, of, of, the, of the flagellants here. Because just the, the mere practice of the mortification of the flesh was largely considered an accepted form of penance within the church. But then when we talk about the movement, we're talking about something that is sometimes described as a mania that— ultimately was beyond the control of the church. And that's where we see the crackdown on groups such as these. uh, And also sometimes those crackdowns were rolled up in the persecution of other heresies.
2: Yeah, that's right, because a number of things could count as supposed mortification of the flesh, and these would be all kinds of things you hear about you know, Christians in the Middle Ages doing in a totally sanctioned way all the time, like fasting is a form right. of mortification of the flesh. You are denying yourself fleshly, carnal pleasures in, in terms of food or whatever, or even just um, uh, assuming poses that are uncomfortable for long periods of time as a way of turning your mind to God, like kneeling for long periods or something. Mm-hmm but you're making the distinction that that uh, in the uh, in the middle ages there arose these movements that were sort of organized and highly devoted to the flagellant practice and these were sometimes uh, condemned and seen as troublemakers by the church authorities. Right.
3: And, and you can, you know, it ultimately gets into a complex area because you can say, well, okay, if the church believes that they have the path to salvation, it's their job to keep people from altering the recipe to the point where it's no longer producing the desired results or, you know, causing greater harm. Um, but then on the other hand, you know, it, it is also about power, you know, if, 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 if a group has determined that it, is, that it has reached the point where it is limiting the power of the church, well, then it's, it becomes a threat to the church, right?
2: Yeah. Uh, but I, another thing we should, of course, say is that the, uh, the threats represented by these flagellant groups, it was not just a threat to the authority of the church structure. They were also doing very bad things in some cases, like there were cases where flagellant groups were involved in, say, the persecution of minority groups within the communities,
3: Right, and and yeah, and that's where we get to another you know huge area that, that comes out of the religious response to the Black Death, um, the persecution of uh, minority groups, including the the persecution of Jewish communities. Mm-hmm. So Jewish communities were often had often been the target of of say blood libel and accusations of various crimes and events. Um, and in response to the Black Death, there were vile accusations that the plague outbreaks were due to Jewish people poisoning wells. Yeah. Now, certainly, well poisoning has been used as a weapon of war, had been used for, since the, in war and conflict since very ancient times. We see accounts of it uh, being used by the Assyrians and others. But there was no well poisoning going on here. And it's, it's, not, it's not even how this particular illness would have readily spread. Right. Uh, th- there's an interesting article uh, that I was reading about, uh, about some of this, Peter Schwarzstein's The History of Poisoning of the Well in Smithsonian, uh, which gets into this larger trend, like how far back does this go, uh, especially uh, in uh, ancient uh, you know, Mesopotamian conflict. Uh, but uh, the author also gets into these accusations of well poisoning a little bit uh, during the Black Death. I also found a, a very good write-up on specifically the the uh, semitic activities during the Black Death on jewishhistory.org that has as has a good write-up.
2: Now it should be stated that this was not the first time in history there had been anti-Jewish persecution in Europe, but this was a, you know that that was a long tradition going back in many ways to the early days of the church. Um but this was a big spike in it.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um and in, in, in so that that line of behavior, that line of um, of lashing out with hatred against um Against uh, the Jewish people and, and other um, minority communities, uh, th- like that was already established. So then comes the Black Death. Uh, these other religious options were kind of explored, and in some cases, eventually exhausted. You know, asking yourself, "Well, why are we being punished? Is it because of a failure in the Crusades? Is it rampant sin? Is it probably problems in the Church, etc." Uh, so yeah, they they end up turning then to these Jewish communities, and the idea of mass poisoning. Uh, by Jewish communities was something that had already been raised in previous persecution uh, efforts, uh, sometimes with lepers thrown into the accusation as well, uh, you know, so it gets into this whole conspiracy-based um, uh, illogical territory of like, you know, the, the Jewish people and, and lepers working together to poison us and create disease. Right. And as the Shortstein points out in, in his article, uh, this was already happening you know, before the Black Death in response to uh, a lot of waterborne illnesses, for example, but then the Black Death gave it new life. And so you saw regulations put in place and, 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 uh, cities like Vienna, where Jewish people were banned from consuming food uh, and drink that was intended for Christians. And this madness basically continued till the 15th century. And along the way, we saw the persecution and the slaughter of Jews, uh, the Roman, the Roma people as well, other minority groups. Pope Clement VI um, actually outlawed it in an attempt to protect Jewish communities. But the uh, That only worked so much. I mean, the the horrible acts of expulsion and genocide continued. So one of the, again, the really interesting things about all of this is that, again, none of these religion-based attempts to thwart the plague really worked. And to a large extent, the church of the 14th century was just met with this terrible test, um, and they failed. People turned to the church and it was unable to help, unable to help in the larger sense of preventing the illness. But even the smaller instances in, of providing a framework for the suffering, uh, th- there was a lot of pessimism during this period toward the powers that be. And you can you read accounts of, say, churchmen not interacting with the lay people out of fear of death, and that included, say, like, last rites for the dying. So there was this idea that the church was forsaking people just as people were forsaking each other
2: in the wake of this illness. Uh, Yeah, there's actually interesting debate from the time period about – about what is the appropriate course of action for uh, for Christians and for the clergy in reaction to the plague like like a big question was should you flee the plague or not or should you stay, should you flee or should you stay to help your Christian brethren and actually like the, there's a whole Martin Luther essay where he talks about the this this debate this argument about uh, whether you should whether you have a duty to stay or whether you should you should flee
3: yeah and now this is not to say that that everyone just outright abandoned Christianity, but there was uh, there was an increased turning away from the church in search of quote a different understanding of the Christian message and walk of faith uh, this according to Joshua J. Mark who uh, uh, wrote about it in 2020s religious responses to the Black Death uh, this uh, you also get into this argument that ultimately this kind of religious crisis uh in Europe Kind of laid the groundwork for the Protestant Reformation of later centuries.
2: Yeah, Martin Luther's uh, famous 95 Theses were were published in the early 16th century, I believe, like the 15 teens at some point. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and of course, you know, at the time, in the centuries following the Black Death itself in the 14th century, there were still recurrent waves of plague popping up here and there th- throughout Europe. So it wasn't like The plague went away after the Black Death, as we've talked about. The plague continued to be an ongoing issue for the centuries that followed.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Now, I want to come back just very briefly to one of the sources I I cited last time, uh, The Anthropology of Plague by uh, Sharon N. DeWitt, published in Pandemic Disease in the Medieval World from 2014. So, as the author points out, the Black Death initiated or accelerated social, demographic, and economic changes throughout the region. Uh, so, there there are changes that were already in motion to some degree, but the Black Death arguably sped them up, made them more urgent, more actionable, etc. Though, again, the, we get into this uh, this very difficult to um, uh, to hammer out area of trying to imagine what the future would have been like. Had something not occurred like what would it, what was the trajectory of of religion in europe um, and and how would an absence of plague have affected that trajectory because even if you took plague out of the scenario, you still had famine, you still had war, you still had people suffering and living this um, you know uh, often you know degraded uh, standard of living. Uh, within a feudal system, mm-hmm. so all of those elements were still in place. all of those elements were already uh, you know pushing some of the changes to come so uh, you know, i, I don 't know it's it 's difficult to to tease it all apart and and try and figure out what would have happened had the plague not happened, and if not this plague, I mean potentially some other plague it 's not like this was the only illness affecting the the people of Europe during these centuries
2: and as as we 've mentioned previously, of course it 's important to keep in mind that. Uh, despite the sort of uh, Eurocentric dominance of the historical analyses of the uh, of the plague that exists, the the second plague pandemic did not only affect Christian Europe. I mean, it affected large portions of the world. It uh, affected Europe, Africa, and Asia. And so, another really interesting area of study is looking at Islamic societies and and how they reacted to the plague in their own ways. Uh, now, as I've mentioned several times, this is an area that seems somewhat complicated because much like the scientific history of the the plague pandemic itself, the subject of the Islamic religious response to plague has, I think, undergone some recent revision and reexamination. Looking at the time, I think we maybe do need to save uh, most of this discussion for the next episode, but... Uh, Just as a hint of things to come, I I did want to read a passage that I found really haunting. Uh, This was cited in, again, that essay I mentioned earlier by Michael W. Doles from the 70s. Uh, And so uh, Doles is pointing out that while the majority of historical scholarship, especially at the time he was writing, but probably still, uh, the, the majority of scholarship on the second plague pandemic has focused on its effects on Europe, it was also extremely destructive and historically significant in the Muslim world at the time, including in the Middle East, in North Africa and Andalusia and so forth. And uh, to describe this state of affairs, Dull's quotes from a 14th century Arab Muslim historian and philosopher named Ibn Khaldun. Uh, uh, Ibn Khaldun is a, a very important intellectual of the Middle Ages who did work that I think could be seen as a precursor to many of the social sciences. So he did work sort of examining different uh, you know things that might be considered sociology later. And he, he tried to do sort of political analysis of the course of empires and, 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 uh, and their economic histories and things like this. But he also wrote about the plague that was taking place during his own lifetime. And so I want to read a passage that's translated here by Rosenthal. Even Khaldun writes, uh, in the middle of the 8th century, and that would be the 8th century by the calendar he was working with, we, as what we've been referring to as the 14th century. Civilization in the East and West was visited by a destructive plague which devastated nations and caused populations to vanish. It swallowed up many of the good things of civilization and wiped them out. It overtook the dynasties at the time of their senility, when they had reached the limit of their duration. It lessened their power and curtailed their influence. It weakened their authority. Their situation approached the point of annihilation and dissolution. Civilization decreased with the decrease of mankind. Cities and buildings were laid waste. Roads and way signs were obliterated. Settlements and mansions became empty dynasties and tribes grew weak. The entire inhabited world changed. The East, it seems, was similarly visited, though in accordance with and in proportion to its civilization. Uh, The the author gives a note that's, uh, according to Khaldun's estimation, the East's more affluent civilization. Uh, And then he finishes by writing, it was as if the voice of existence in the world had called out for oblivion and restriction, and the world had responded to its call. Oh wow! What a harrowing piece of writing. That is amazing. Yeah, that that gave me goosebumps a little bit there,
3: and yeah. and really, it drives home so many of the points we've been we've been making, or that have been made in the sources we've been citing here.
2: Yeah, uh, and and Dole's actually fills in that even Caldun himself lost his parents and a number of his teachers uh, to the Black Death. He, I think he was living in Tunis at the time in uh, modern day Tunisia, but he he dwelled in in North Africa at the time. And of course, it was affected just like the, uh, the other side of the Mediterranean was.
3: All right. Well, on that note, we're going to go ahead and close out this part two, but we'll be back with part three next week, I believe on Tuesday. So, stay tuned for that. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you'll find them in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We have core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, listener mail on Mondays, uh, artifact on Wednesdays, on Friday we do a little weird house cinema, that's our time to just mostly discuss a weird movie, and on the weekends we run a vault episode,
2: which is a fancy way of saying we do a re-
0: Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.